Among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honour. Now my soul is troubled, and what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this, re this reason that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said that it was thunder. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate the kind of death he was to die. I don't know whether you saw in the press yesterday that yesterday was the UN International Day of Happiness. And just before it came out the annual list of the world's happiest countries. Not just secular new newspapers, but lots of stuff coming out from the churches at the moment are all about well-being and mental health, which I suppose in some ways is all about happiness. About what we need to do to keep well and happy in this pandemic. But what might seem surprising is that while there has been an overall rise of about 10% in people saying that they have had negative thoughts and worry, the percentage of people saying that they're actually fundamentally happy or okay hasn't changed. Not a bit. Now, I don't know why that is the case. In lockdown, we can't do what we want to do. We can't see who we want to see. We can't go where we want to go. So why are we still on average just as happy? Could it be that the route to happiness is not found in getting what we want? Those who love their life lose it. And those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. At first, this may seem a very hard and unappealing saying. It sounds like Jesus is asking us to trudge through our lives, making sure we only do the things that we hate and avoid all the things that we enjoy so that when we die, we get to a place of heaven, of pleasure everlasting. 
actually there is some evidence that Christians over the ages have thought it meant just that. Deliberately doing hard, difficult and painful things in order to get themselves closer to God. I don't know whether you know about there's a saint called Saint Simeon Stylites, I think his name, who lived his life on top of a pillar. <laughs> then there were the poor Clares who used to go around barefoot in all weather. And there is a persistent practice of self-flagellation, interestingly enough, not just in Christianity. But surely that's not what Jesus is asking of us here, is he? He also said, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Contrasting himself to the devil who only comes to seek, to seek and kill and destroy. What might help us to make sense of what appear to be contradictory verses is the fact that the word translated here as life is the Greek word, suke or huke, which is translated elsewhere as soul. In real life, those of us who jump about following the directions of John, Joe Wicks to help us with our fitness we do it because he's the perfect exemplar of what he's encouraging us to do. He's fit and strong himself. So you believe that he knows what he's talking about. People in Jesus' day and now follow him because he best exemplified life in all its fullness. So we think that if we can look at Jesus, we'll see what that abundant life looks like. Well, I would say that from Jesus, even though I have heard the argument that he must have wear, wore pretty natty clothes if they were gambling for them at the cross, I don't believe that it existed in what he wore. It didn't exist in what, where he lived because he was living in an amazing house, because he wasn't living in an amazing house. As far as I know, apart from being a carpenter, when he was um, a traveling teacher, that wasn't a job that he did for money. So, it wasn't that he had the most amazing career. In fact, you could say he had a pretty disastrous career. He did it only for three years and he ended up being executed. So what did constitute the abundant life that we could model ourselves on in Jesus? Well, first of all, he lived in close relationship with God, but also to his fellow disciples. I think what we, think of as fellowship in the church can often be a pale reflection on what it's really like to live in community with others both i think when you're closer to them there's more sorrow but there's also far more joy from my own experience of living in community but he had a life that was expressed both in obedience to god and in service in John's Gospel, for instance, it says that Jesus had to go through Samaria when he was going from Judea to Galilee. That was when he had that encounter with a woman of Samaria. He had to go through there. But if you actually look at a map, Samaria was a sort of detour. It wasn't that he had to go through there. We can only assume that it was because God was leading him there that he had to because God had said that he had to. There are plenty of other puzzling occasions when Jesus didn't do the thing that pleased people, 
or made him popular or famous. He did what he knew was the right thing to do, and sometimes we didn't know why that was. It didn't make logical sense. And this obedience to God, I think, formed the core of the abundant life that he lived. He so clearly expressed in himself that people saw it and were drawn to it. People like those visiting Greeks that we heard about at the beginning of this gospel reading who came and said, we want to see Jesus. Apparently that was what the preacher, Charles Simeon, put on the inside of his pulpit. Sir, we want to see Jesus. To remind himself that whenever he was preaching, he wanted to show Jesus to his people. Jesus promised us life in all its fullness, but the more we're in thrall to the powers and ways of doing things of this world, the less we can see or encounter that abundant life. If people aren't knocking on our doors and asking us, we want to see Jesus and we think we can see him where you are, perhaps, just perhaps, it's because they can't quite see the same abundant life in us. Now, there are things that help churches grow. It's important to do things well, to have an environment that's cared for. So thank you very much for all those who've been working so hard cleaning the church. It's important to have carefully prepared music and sermons and liturgy. But even with the best musicians or the most erudite preachers or the most comfortable pews, sorry about that, Churches won't see growth unless those who visit can see something different in the lives of those who come week by week. Otherwise, it's just a good show, and probably there are better ones in the West End. So how do we get that abundant life? Well, I think as Jesus modelled it, it starts with a priority on prayer. And that's not just about having a nice time with God and absorbing his love for us, but it's also about being prepared to listen to what he might tell us to do. Sister Frances Dominica writes this, if we really pray, we take a big risk because by doing so, we're saying, here I am, send me. And God may take us at our word. The first time I walked through the doors of my, the church where I served my title, in other words, where I trained to be a curate, a woman came up to me, she was retired, she'd been sitting behind the desk, she walked straight up to me, flung her arms around me and said, you're an answer to prayer. I still haven't worked out what prayer it was that I was an answer to, I have to say. But that woman who did that, who took me slightly aback at the time, um, was a retired missionary called Mary. Mary had been a missionary in South America, and she described herself as a failed missionary. I think because she felt that she hadn't planted lots of churches or seen lots of healings or seen lots of conversions. She'd just kind of been there. But I personally find it very hard to believe that she was a failure because she had such an impact on our church community in Dulwich. 
When she left South America, she told me that she came back to the UK and she had to find work and she was a trained teacher. So she took the very hard job after being out of teaching for a long time of teaching teenagers at the local Ruffy Tuffy Comprehensive. I think she was well loved there as well. She lived initially, I remember going to visit her and being quite shocked in a tiny gloomy flat. But her landlady, like the rest of us, fell in love with Mary's joy and fun. And while I was still in Dulwich, I remember going to the housewarming of Mary's new, new house that she went to live in. She had a whole house to herself. Her landlord letting it to her, the same one she had before, at a peppercorn rent until she died. There's also um, a lovely story about Mary and her sense of humour. You may know there's a story in the Old Testament in the second book of Kings, where there's a lookout who sees a charioteer from their, their vision post. And in verse 20, it says, the lookout reported, he has reached them, but he isn't coming back either. The driving is like Jehu, son of Nimshi. He drives like a maniac. And Mary had a mobility scooter, which she called Jehu. Anyway, that's a Mary story. On Sunday, Sunday morning, she arrived early and sat in the front row, and a stream of people would go up to her to get one of her massive hugs and beaming smiles. She had treatment for breast cancer, and whenever her follow-up clinics gave her the all-clear, she'd come back with a gloomy face saying, I failed finals again. And she was straight talking, the only person I ever remember rebuking me when I was out of order. And yet I always felt her love and acceptance. She was a woman who'd taken the risk of saying, here I am, send me, and God had taken her at her word. Her life had much sacrifice, and yet she had more joy than anyone else I met there. Since I arrived here with you in August, I've hardly been here at a usual time. And yet it's clear to me that if we want to see our church grow, things can't just go back to the way they were when we're able to do everything that we used to be able to do. We've been declining even before then. And the definition of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting different results. So how do we know what to continue doing and what do we do differently? Now that's the million dollar question. But I think at least part of the answer lies not in programs, but in people. In the approach of each and every one of us to our life and our faith. My friend Mary had obviously been a missionary, but on her return and retirement, in many ways she had a life very much like many of yours. The difference perhaps between her life and the many around her in Dulwich was that while she loved the pattern of life at the church, she was steadfastly open to how God might be working in new ways. And she supported those new ways with her presence or her prayer. So why not take a risk? Risk a step into a greater abundance of life. And pray and wait on God 
and say, here I am, send me. And do tell me what happens next. <laughs>